Well, good morning once again. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we will continue on through the book of Romans. And we will be taking a break from our regular uh, course through the book next week, and then we'll get back to it after that. Lord willing, we will finish out chapter 4 of Romans today and be able to um, finish up what has been Paul's argument that he started in the beginning of chapter 4, talking about justification, which he introduced and developed uh, in a very core passage there at the end of chapter 3. And then he turned to the Old Testament to teach us and show us that, in fact, this idea of justification by faith is not a new concept It didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus didn't make it up. Paul didn't make it up. But in fact, you find it in the Old Testament. And so he begins to look at Abraham and David from the Old Testament. And he's arguing for the fact that justification has always been by faith. And uh, he's going to conclude that uh, that argument today at the end of chapter 4. And so if you would look with me at uh, chapter 4 and verse 18. In hope... He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith As he gave glory to God, fully convinced that he was able to do, that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, we take this opportunity to come into your presence in prayer once again. We rejoice in who you are. We recognize that you are our creator and sustainer. We recognize that you have always existed and you did not need to create us and yet you did. We owe our very existence to you. And so we worship you. You are our God and there is none like you. And we praise you for what you've done. We praise you for your word. We praise you for the body of Christ that we get to join with together to celebrate and rejoice in you. And we praise you most of all for Jesus. That though we were rebels, sinners, running away from you, yet 
You sent Him, Your only Son, to become one of us and obey where we have disobeyed and die where we should have died, that we might be redeemed. And so we praise You for Christ. And as we come to our time this morning, Father, I pray that You would help us to have our eyes fixed on Him, that we would be able to set aside our worries from this past week. Maybe this past week was awful. Maybe it had more stress and more pain. Maybe it had, it had more rough life or our own sin than we can bear. But I pray that You would help us to be right here right now. That Your Word would have its impact in our hearts even this morning. I pray that you would help us as we spend this time together that we would not be contemplating what comes after, whether lunch or something later in the day or this week, whether worries or excitement, but in fact that we would be right here. So speak to us, we pray, by your Spirit in this time and from your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage today brings up a question, a question that uh, maybe we ask ourselves, what is strong faith? What makes strong faith? How would you define it? We could talk about faith for a good long time, but what makes strong faith? Is it the absence of doubt? Maybe, Maybe strong faith means we never have questions. We never have hard questions. Is that what strong faith is? What characterizes it? Maybe maybe strong faith is a faith that continually trusts God for bigger and bigger things. Bigger and better things. And and by doing so, we show that we have strong faith. Maybe strong faith is something that's always looking for the miraculous. And for anyone who's not expecting the miraculous, their faith is not strong. And for those who are just waiting for God to do something big and impossible, they have strong faith. What what is strong faith? What gives it strength? Well, as Paul wraps up his chapter where he's showing that justification by faith has always been the way of salvation from the very beginning, he, he points to Abraham's faith. And he talks about what's so special about Abraham's faith. What's powerful about Abraham's faith? What made his faith strong? And so we begin our passage today by looking at how faith is challenged. And I want to note, first of all, the content of faith. What's the content of faith? Because we don't talk about faith in the abstract, as in, I have faith, and we don't conclude that sentence. Just float it out there. I have faith. I want to challenge you that faith has to have an object and that faith can only be as powerful as the object. And if you just have some vague notion of faith, but not in a particular object, person, then your faith is no faith at all. It's some kind of wishful thinking. And the faith that we read about here has a content Let's start in verse 18 again. In hope, 
Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. You see, Abraham had a content. He had a particular faith. There was something he believed in. There was, there was uh, something he was trusting God for. And the content of the faith is the promise from God that he would be the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So he, he had a particular faith. There was a particular promise that he was relying upon. He was trusting in God, not in some vague sense. Very often you'll talk to people and ask them that they believe in God. And in the abstract, absolutely. They say they believe in God. Well, then you start questioning them and, and wanting to know a little bit more specifically, well, what do you believe about God? Or what are you trusting God for? And you find that there's actually not a lot of depth to the things that they believe about God. There's not a lot of depth to the things that they're trusting God for. They're trusting that He's out there somewhere, whatever He's like and whatever He's doing. But yeah, I believe in God. And that's not the faith of Abraham. Abraham's faith was much more pointed. It was directed. He had, he had received promise from God that he would become the father of many nations. Well, on the one hand, that seems like a relatively simple promise. It was a promise from God that a couple would have children, right? It doesn't seem like a big deal. But on the other hand, as time went on, and it became clear that this couple is not going to have children, they've not had children, despite the decades of, of marriage and the decades of even having the promise, and it seems more and more outlandish that, in fact, they will have children because they're both getting older. But this promise that God had given, it was His Word. It was His Word. It was God's Word saying what He would do. And so Abraham was believing God to keep His Word, to keep His promise that He said He would do. Faith has a specific direction. Abraham believed God. He believed the promise of God. And it had specific content that he would become the father of many nations. So we, we sit here and we know the story and we've read this before. And, and, uh, and, and we think, well, yeah, of course, you just wait a little bit longer. But he had waited a long time. He had waited a long time. It says, in fact, in hope... He believed against hope. The idea is that all evidence points to the contrary, and yet Abraham continued to believe. Everything said, this is not going to carry out. This is not going to be completed. God will not or cannot keep this promise. And yet in light of all of that evidence, in hope he believed against hope that God would fulfill his promise, despite all evidence to the contrary. And first of all, there were contrary circumstances. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. The circumstances of his life put him, you know, at the hundred year mark. He's not going to be having children. He's not going to father any 
children at this point. And, and of course, the promise had been made when he was much younger, and, and it was still, you know, a, a big promise given when it was made. But now, decades have passed, and now the circumstances are saying, no way is this going to be fulfilled. It can't happen. A hundred-year-old man does not bear children. And so we, we see that all circumstances pointed to the fact that this was not going to be fulfilled. Well, and all history. So we have contrary circumstances and we have contrary history. Because not only does he talk about his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, but it says, it continues there in 19, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He didn't just have present circumstances to look at and say this is not going to happen. He also had all of history, all of his own personal history to point to and say God is not going to keep this promise. Circumstances pointed away from this promise and history said it was never going to be fulfilled. He had all of this time. He had all of this history. Here's a family, a couple who whose so-called productive years were spent childless, and now that they're beyond the age of having children, God, God says, oh, you're going to have children. Everything points against it. And so, before we continue on, there's a point of application here for us. Because in the face of all of that evidence to the contrary, in the face of all of those things that would cause Abraham to doubt, that would tell him and would assure him that in fact God will not keep this promise. In the face of that, in the face of all the evidence, what did Abraham do? He believed God. And so the application for us is we must not interpret the Word of God in light of our experience. But rather, we interpret our experience in light of the Word of God. Now, that sounds simple and it sounds relatively contrite, but it's not. When you begin to ask people what they believe, or when you begin to talk with people about what they struggle with, very often you will see that they have this experience in their own life. A lens through which they interpret Scripture. And so they take that experience with them. They take that history with them when they read the Bible and they interpret the Bible in light of that experience, in light of that history. And that is exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. But we see it all the time. Instead, we are to read the Bible and interpret our experience, our history, in light of what Scripture says. That's true in doctrinal matters. That's true in personal matters. That's true when it comes to doubt. That's true when it comes to all of life that we interpret our life through the grid of Scripture and not the other way around. And that's not easy to do because we all have our experience. And we really see things through our own eyes. We have our own perspectives. But that's the challenge of a life of walking with Christ is that we continually subject ourselves to God's Word. We continually read it for what is here. And it's a struggle because I'm reading through my lenses, but I need to fight against that. I need to recognize where I'm interpreting Scripture in light of my own experiences. And I need to do my best to set that aside. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why the interpretation of, by, of, of Scripture on, is not primarily on our own in our closet. 
We as a church do that. We as a church do that. We interpret it together. We help each other in that regard. And so this is another plug, as Andy said, for connect groups, for us to do this together. And certainly it's a plug for you all to be here. Of course, I'm just preaching to the choir because here you are. Good job. (laughs) We're going to come back to this same point. But we see his faith challenged. Those were serious challenges that Abraham had to his faith. But we continue on and we see how his faith was strengthened. Look at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He had unwavering belief. Unwavering belief. Now, that's, that's point 2A in your outline, but I ask the question, was his faith really unwavering? I mean, you've read Genesis, right? You know the story of Abimelech. You know the story of, uh, of Abraham's life and how it seemed like he, his faith certainly was not always unwavering. So keep your finger in Romans chapter 4, if you would, and go back with me to Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to review just a little bit of this story. I reread the story of most of Abraham's life this morning, and, uh, and sure enough, we'll find evidence in his life of some things that don't really read like unwavering faith. For example, in Genesis chapter 15, we have a case in point. Starting in verse 3, we have Abraham complaining to God. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. By the way, whose fault is that? In his, his accusation, God, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. See, Abraham knew that he was expected to have children. He knew that he was expected to have heirs. Kings would come forth from him, that, that through his descendants all the families of the earth would be blessed, etc. So surely he's got to have an heir. And he comes to God and he says, well, I don't have any of my own children, so I guess it's going to be someone from my household. And of course God answers him in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And so God tells him, look, It's not going to be someone from your household. It's not going to be someone who has power of attorney or something like that to to receive your inheritance. It will be your very own child, someone from your body. And so Abraham gets the message. Good for Abraham. He learned, okay, great, it's going to be someone from my own body. Well, now we turn to chapter 16. He knew it was going to be his very own child who was going to be his heir, and so We read in 16 and verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So uh, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And then in verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. So he knew he received the promise and the correction from chapter 15 that no, this isn't going to be some distant, uh, someone from your household is going to inherit. This is going to be your own child. 
So what's the next step in Abraham's life? His wife comes and says, well, I can't have children, so here, take Hagar and have children with her. Since the child is to be your very own, this will be your very own child. And so he agrees with that. He goes along with it. And she conceived. Well, now we look down in chapter 17. It it, it kind of seems, parenthetically speaking, like maybe there's a little bit of wavering going on. Abraham doesn't always make the right decisions. He, uh, he can take some wrong paths at times. And so, in fact, in chapter 17, we have the promise of the birth of Isaac. And uh, we'll start in verse 15 of chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Not by some other woman, but by her, and I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And so God has corrected him. God has said, Yeah, it's going to be someone from, from your own body, Abraham, but not just any old woman or any young woman, but from Sarah. You and Sarah will have a child. And what does Abraham do? He laughs. He laughs. And he says, really? A man who's 99 is going to have a child and and a woman who's 90 is going to have a child? Is that what's going to happen? Now, some people want to defend Abraham here and say, no, he was rejoicing, laughing and rejoicing. Those are very similar. He was actually rejoicing and saying, praise the Lord, an old man and an old woman are going to have a child. But I don't think that's the case. By the way, the Bible doesn't really go to a great lengths to um, polish the character of uh, the heroes of the Bible. The, the warts and all get shown. And the same is true here with Abraham. Look at verse Verse 18, the very next verse, And Abraham said to, said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He wasn't rejoicing when he was laughing. He, he didn't believe it. He, he thought it was preposterous. And he said, Just take Ishmael. <clears throat> Let's renege on this other stuff so that you instead take Ishmael as my heir. And so we see evidence here that He struggled, as you might struggle if you were 100 and your wife was 90 and God said you were going to have a child. But Paul calls his faith an unwavering faith. But we clearly see episodes of doubt. We clearly see episodes of confusion and even disobedience that flows from that, right? Abraham's life is, is, uh, is not a straight path. He takes some turns, and I haven't hit all of the turns. There are more. But we see evidence of, of doubt, of, of concern, of difficulty in understanding or in comprehending or in believing what God said that he would do. And yet, Paul says, going back to Romans chapter 4, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. So how do we understand those two things? Is Paul 
looking through rose-colored glasses? Is he painting Abraham in the best light or is he not telling the truth about Abraham? I don't think anything's, any of those things is true. Abraham's situation was a severe challenge. And he had been carrying this promise for decades. The promise had been made, made to him long ago. And now he's gotten old. And the older he gets, the harder it is to believe that, that the promise is going to be fulfilled, that God's actually going to do what he said. It was a severe challenge. And at this point, it was a real test. It was a genuine, difficult question of whether this is going to be fulfilled in their lives or not. So I want to pause here for just a second to make a point of application. In your own life, deep down where no one can see, do you face doubts? Do you face doubts in your own life? Where from the outside we would say so-and-so has a, an unwavering faith, clearly a rock-solid faith. But do you sometimes struggle to believe that God will keep His promises? Or do you believe that you struggle to believe that God will keep His promises to you? Specifically? Personally? If that's you, you can take heart from the way Paul talks about Abraham. Abraham clearly had some serious doubts at times. He, he struggled. He, he, he almost scoffed at God's promise. And this wasn't early on in his life. This wasn't when he was just learning about the things of God. This is after he's walked with God for decades. And he struggles to believe. And his struggles to believe lead to disobedience, to confusion, to all kinds of problems. He struggled to take God at his word. But... There's something in the attitude of humble doubt. Occasional humble doubt that is very different from proud skepticism. That doubts what God says because He's got to prove it to me. I'm the judge and God needs to lay the evidence before me or I will not believe it. You hear the difference between that attitude... And Abraham, who just struggled to believe in the face of this, in the face of decades of infertility, now you're going to give us children? Lord, I struggled to believe that. It was a humble doubting. It was a genuine doubt. It was not the kind that puts God on the stand and says, answer for me. Answer my questions or else. Typically, that's the nature of skepticism. It's a very proud, self-centered, and self-righteous life that questions God because He hasn't proven it to me yet. There's a big difference. The overall tenor of Abraham's life was, was faith, and it was trust in the promises of God. He moved here and there. He did things and said things and lived his life that showed he had faith in God with intense and real struggles at times. He didn't always understand. And yet Paul would say no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He persevered in his faith through the course of his life. And in fact, he was strengthened in faith. And so if that's you, if you struggle with doubt, take heart. 
take heart. Even Abraham, who's the father of faith, struggled with the same kinds of things. But he grew strong in his faith. And so we ask the question, how did he grow strong in his faith? Well, first of all, by giving glory to God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Part of the struggle of the Christian life is to to tear our eyes away from our circumstances and lift them to God. To keep our eyes fixed on Him. To trust in Him. Because my circumstances are painful. My circumstances are real. My circumstances are right here in my face and I can't go through a day without dealing with my circumstances. And, And the temptation is that all of my focus is right here and not on God. And it says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Not when he wallowed in his circumstances, in his difficulties. But he gave glory to God. That is, thanking God and praising God for what he has done. The things that we have seen in our own lives that God has done. And the things that we see in Scripture that God has done. And so we need to direct our gaze that way. We need to direct our gaze to God's Word off of our circumstances. Not that we can never observe our circumstances. Not that we can't think about the situation that we're in. But we need to direct our focus and our attention to God's Word. And through that, our focus and attention is directed towards God Himself. And we go strong in our faith as we give glory to God for what He's done. So how do you grow strong in your faith? You glorify God. You give Him glory. You pronounce glory for Him for the things that He has done. And when we do that, as we, as we do that together, as you do that on your own, you're training yourself to look for God, to see Him, to seek Him by glorifying God in everything, good situations and, and bad situations. And this is... Many of you know that... Uh, in 2010, we were in Turkey. We were in Istanbul for 10 weeks as a family, and we didn't know at the time, but we, we understand now that we were sort of being edged out of our missionary service in Russia and brought back here, but we didn't know either one of those. We certainly didn't know that we weren't going to get back to Russia, and we didn't know that, that we would be coming back here. We were just in the middle, in our circumstances, and, and we wondered, what's going on? And we, we didn't know. And so here we were in an apartment in Istanbul. And, and it seems glorious. And at times it was glorious. But we went there in, you know, it was like March 1st when we went there. And so it's rainy and dreary. And our apartment had mold. And, uh, and we just sit there, you know, just kind of gray and cold. And we would wonder, when are we going to get back to Russia? Are we going to be able to get our visas? Are we going to be able to return? And as time went on, we began to realize, well, it seems like we're not going to. And so we weren't sure what to do. So we went for lots of long walks. We, we looked at the sites in Istanbul and, and uh, tried not to spend too much money because we didn't have too much. But all the while, in the back of our minds, we're thinking, what's next? Where do we go next? What's God going to do? And we had no idea. And so Stephanie and I would each individually open God's Word. And we would read it for hours. And we'd come back together after the end of just reading and reading and reading, come back together and we would talk about God's faithfulness to His people. 
We would remind ourselves that God has been faithful to his people in impossible circumstances. And by the way, we're in Istanbul, Turkey. Our circumstances are not impossible. They're just a little dreary. (laughs) But we gave glory to God for the things that he had done. And we would go back the next day and do the same thing. And we would read about God's faithfulness to his people. And we would come together and we would give God glory for what he had done. And we grew strong in our faith as we gave glory to God. And we got to the point where we were willing and able to trust Him for what He was going to do next, regardless of what it was. Regardless of whether we got to go back to Russia or somewhere else on the mission field or somewhere else in the world, or even Fallon, America. We grew strong in our faith as we gave glory to God. And that's, that's exactly what Abraham did. But Paul continues, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. Abraham was fully convinced of God's promises. How do we become fully convinced of God's promises? Well, we don't have complete control over that. But there are things that we can do to be more fully convinced of the promises that God has made. First of all, how did God give Abraham his promise? In his word. We have his word. And so, it doesn't say this in the text, but I can imagine, and I feel justified in this because of the way Paul refers to it, but that that Abraham reflected on that promise. So shall your offspring be. You will be the father of many nations. God said to me, I would be the father of many nations. I don't get my circumstances, but God said to me, I would be the father of many nations. So shall your offspring be. And he pondered God's word and he dwelt upon God's word and God began to grow in him and strengthen in him a greater and greater confidence in his promises. And so for us, Christian, we've got to be in God's word. Faith in God, Christian faith, is not divorced from, cannot be removed from or separated from Scripture. Our faith in God grows as we expose ourselves to God's Word, as we study God's Word. Paul calls this, later on in Romans 12, he he calls this the transforming renewal of our minds. And how do we do that? Well, Andy stole my verse earlier and said that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. You want to grow in your faith? You want to be more and more confident of God's promises? You want to believe God more? Expose yourself to God's Word. Expose yourself to God's Word. The clearest way that we get to do that, the most effective way we get to do that is right here. And so again, I commend you for being here. Be here next week. The Word will be preached again next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, until the Lord comes. The word is preached here. The word is proclaimed here. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So as you hear the word of God proclaimed, as you expose yourself to God's word in this way, you grow stronger in your faith. You become more and more fully convinced of God's promises. We also have connect groups that we talked about. Join one of those. If if that schedule doesn't work for you, then come to us and talk and we will... Figure out how to arrange another connect group that will work for your schedule so that you can have another exposure, another time of being taught God's Word. We have Bible studies, and we teach the Bible there too. Everywhere we go, we teach the Bible. So show up and hear the Bible. And of course, we have Sunday school at 9 o'clock. 
And there are uh, quite a few who are faithful attenders of Sunday school at 9 o'clock. But we teach the Bible. Show up and you'll learn the Bible. Show up and you'll be confronted again with God's faithfulness to His promises. So that's our, our application. Show up. Be here. Be exposed to God's Word. And of course, you have the Bible. You have the Bible in whatever format you would like, in whatever version you would like, in whatever font you would like. On your phone, you can, you can buy one, you can carry it. Some of you, I see, I'm hoping you're scrolling and checking my references on your phone and not doing something else. You have access to God's Word. Read God's Word. Expose yourself to it. All right, thank you. One guy, one guy showed me that he was actually reading the Bible, so. <laughs> the rest of you, I'll just uh, believe it. Read God's Word. Submit yourself, subject yourself to the teaching of God's Word. And you will grow in faith and you'll become more and more convinced that God keeps His promises. And let's look at true faith's result. We continue in verse 22. That is why His faith was counted to Him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to Him, were not written for His sake alone, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He brings his argument full circle. He started the chapter by using Abraham as an example of justification by faith being found in the Old Testament, not being a new concept. And he does so here. He says, in light of the fact that Abraham grew strong in his faith and as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, thus, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So righteousness was counted to him. It was given to him. It was credited to him. It was put into his account. An alien righteousness, a righteousness that was not his own, was given to him by faith. It was credited to him. So that he now stood before God righteous and just. Not because his life appeared to be righteous and just. We just saw how it did not. But righteousness was counted to him by faith. And so it was counted to him, but Paul says, but it was not written for his sake alone. The words that was counted to him were not for his sake alone, but for ours also. The same is true for us. He's making continuity with the first Hebrew, Abraham, all the way to the believer now. Salvation is, is the same. It's, it's justification by faith, just like it was for him. And he spent a whole chapter talking about Abraham and his faith talking about how righteousness was counted to him. And he says, by the way, believer, it's exactly how you were justified. By faith. How are you righteous before God? Did you become so? Did you work your way that direction? Did you climb the ladder? Did you check the boxes? Did you make it happen? It was counted to you. The alien righteousness of Christ counted towards your account. And that's how he concludes. He says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, 
who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All of salvation in all of time has depended upon Christ. Has depended upon Christ. His righteousness, His obedience, He who was perfectly obedient to the Father, perfectly righteous, had a perfect, complete, full, rich record of righteousness by obedience. And he gives that to the believer. He takes that righteousness and credits it from his account to the believer's account so that we stand there in the righteousness of Christ. What about our sin? Well, he was delivered up for our trespasses. This righteous Christ, this one who had always obeyed, went to the cross, not for anything he had done, not as a martyr, as if against his will. He went there as a substitute to bear the penalty for my trespasses. And he paid that penalty in full. So that the debt, the complete, unfathomable depth of my sin is placed on Christ and punished in Him. So that I stand before God by faith, forgiven, cleansed, cleansed of my sin and all of its guilt, having the righteousness of Christ credited to my account so that I even have a right to stand there before God at peace with Him. How do I know that's true? How do we know that God was pleased with the sacrifice that Jesus made? How do we know that Jesus wasn't just making bold claims that his followers later developed into this whole theology and, and really he was just, just a good teacher? Well, he made bold claims and one of those bold claims was that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And so, God raised him from the dead on the third day. And so we see that God is declaring, I find this sacrifice acceptable and I find it to be complete so that the penalty is fully paid. As our sins were placed upon Christ, if they were not fully executed in Him, fully punished in Him, there would be something remaining and He would not be able to be raised from the dead and declared righteous. But in fact, He paid it fully. And he paid it completely so that the fact of his resurrection makes clear to us, evidences our justification. And so he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. So we can stand before God righteous by faith. That's a glorious truth and Paul has spent all of these chapters developing that and he comes to the end of chapter 4 and he's making the argument that the reason we have justification by faith is because we are in Christ. By faith we are placed in Christ and that's going to lead us into chapter 5 which is a very, very powerful chapter. But as we conclude this one, I want to just remind us how to grow strong in our faith that we continually, repeatedly, day in and day out, expose ourselves to God's Word. 
Think about, study, rehearse, memorize, talk about, challenge one another with God's Word and the promises that He has made. Come to church. Come to Sunday school. Be at connect groups. Be at Bible studies. Read the Bible on your own. Glorify God for what He's done in your life and glorify God for what you read about in His Word. Give Him glory. Give Him glory and grow strong in your faith being fully convinced that God is able to do what He had promised. And finally, remember Jesus, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Remember that gracious gospel of Jesus Christ substituted for me on that cross, in my place, Condemned, he stood. Remember that only in Christ can you stand before God at peace with him. And give him glory for that. Give him glory for that. Let's pray. Father, I rejoice and I celebrate the fact that in Christ I get to stand before you justified. Forgiven of my sin and your righteousness credited to my account so that I stand here at peace with you. Not because I'm a good guy. Not because I've earned something. Not because I've grown and matured to a particular point. But because of what Christ has done. And so I rejoice. And I praise you. And I give you glory. And I pray, Father, that you would... Strengthen our faith as we give glory to you for this glorious and gracious gospel that we would become more and more fully convinced that you are able to keep your promises, that you will in fact do so. Father, as we remind ourselves of the gospel, this is one of the reasons we do that. We glorify you for salvation in Christ. We glorify you for the fact that we get to come into your presence by faith in Christ because we are in him. Father, for any who in, in this room are not in Christ, I pray that they would trust in you. I pray that even today they would put their faith in Christ, that by faith they would be justified, their sin would be removed, and, and righteousness from Christ would be credited to their account so that they who walked in at enmity with you this morning, would walk out at peace with God through faith in Christ. Father, I pray that you would do that. Be glorified in our thoughts. Be glorified in our speech. Be glorified in our church, in our families. And be glorified as we call to mind your faithfulness to keep your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the riches of His glory, may He grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, 
to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up here who wants to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all. Go forth glorifying Him for what He has done. And you are dismissed.